0: You may be wondering um, why I'm going to speak on this particular subject this afternoon. Well, there are a number of reasons. One is that I was asked to. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, But uh, another reason would be that today has actually been designated as Reformation Sunday. Um, uh, But there is an even more pertinent reason, I, I think... For, for us to look at this subject today because um, we've just finished a series based in Acts chapter 2, the last several verses of that chapter, and where we've read of how the first church was formed um, after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. The first church was formed. And next Sunday, we're going to take a significant step in the life of Foundation Church with the appointment of elders and the opportunity for us to make a clear declaration that we're with them and that we're committed to the life and mission of the church here. Well, In Acts chapter 2, we read of how the church was formed but as we read through the remainder of the New Testament, we find that the church was constantly battling against false teachers and doctrines and sects. An unfortunate feature which um, has continued throughout the history of the church. The church had been formed and then it was deformed and so it was that in the early part of the 16th century that a number of church leaders felt compelled to set about reforming the church in the way that the Apostles had set it up in the first place so that's why we call it well we should call it reformation rather than reformation makes more sense so that's, that's what we're talking about today. That's what I want to talk to you about. That process of reformation was begun publicly on the 31st of October, 1517, uh, when Martin Luther, uh, who was a Roman Catholic monk, uh, nailed a document to the door of the castle church in the German city of Wittenberg, And on it was contained his, what's become known as his 95 Theses that challenged the state that the Christian church had got itself into. And from that day, the established church system was shaken to its foundations as the beliefs and practices of the Roman Catholic Church were roundly challenged and condemned. And all this has a very real and practical implication for us today. And you may wonder then, what was it all about? What did he have to say? And what did these men that followed him and worked with him, what did they have to say? The, the best way to sum up what Luther and the other reformers declared and championed is in five tenets. Um, and there they've become known as the five solas. And I think we have them up here now. We're gonna, so just to blind you with Latin, um, there were five of them. Sola scriptura, which was scriptures alone. Sola fide, faith alone. solas Christus, Christ alone, sola gratia, grace alone, and soli deo gloria, the glory of God alone. And it was these five tenets that challenged the religion of the day and set out clearly what the Christian gospel and the Christian church were to be built upon. Are you okay so far? Good. Good. <laughs> in order to understand why these statements were so significantly challenging, we will need I will need just to briefly at least see what the Catholic Church had been teaching up to that point in the 16th century. And I should be clear that in doing that, I do not intend to be Catholic bashing. That isn't my intention at all. But rather to be pointing out some of the serious faults that there were in the Catholic system. So perhaps I should, at this point, declare an interest here. My maternal grandmother was born in Cork in Southern Ireland, and she was a devout Roman Catholic, and she insisted that all her children and grandchildren should be brought up in the Roman Catholic religion. Consequently, I was sent along to a Catholic school, the local Catholic school where we lived in Oxford. It was a convent school, so I was mainly taught by nuns. They were quite nice people, really. In fact, I fell in love with Sister Margaret um, when I was eight. And I decided that perhaps I should become a priest and then she would marry me. Anyway, we were we were taught and recited the Roman Catholic catechism every morning and were thoroughly indoctrinated. I made my first confession and Holy Communion when I was seven, was later confirmed by the bishop, and became an altar boy. Can you just imagine that? (laughs) However, when I reached the age of 13, I decided that there were more interesting things to give my time to, and effectively turned my back on the church and religion in general. I left school at the age of 16 and started an apprenticeship in the printing industry, and it was there that I worked alongside another apprentice who happened to be a member of the Salvation Army. And it was in my conversations with him that for the first time in my life I heard someone talk about Jesus in a very personal way. In fact, he even told me that he loved Jesus, which I thought was weird. He invited me to his youth club and eventually to the Sunday services where I was exposed for the first time in my life to the gospel of God's grace. I was given a Bible. I'd never read a Bible before. Um, when I was at secondary school, which was a state school, in those days, I don't know if it still happens nowadays, but in those days, if you were a Roman Catholic, you didn't have to go into assembly and you didn't have to go into RE lessons, which was great, I thought, um, because you could catch up on your homework when everybody else was <laughs> singing hymns and stuff. So this was the first time that I had ever read a Bible. So as I read the Bible and was taught what it teaches, my eyes were opened to a whole new approach to the ways of God and his love for me and and the unearned, unmerited grace that he gives to those who Simply come to him in faith and then the eternal life that is ours because of what Jesus did through his death on the cross for us. And so it was that in March 1966 at the age of 17 I acknowledged Jesus as my saviour and my lord. And since then have sought to live my life in line with what this book says. So for me, these five solas, just in case you were thinking, this is, this is going to be really boring. You know, it's like half in Latin for a start. Um, I just want you, I want you to know that these five, five solas, these five alones, these five tenets, are absolutely at the core of my relationship with God. And to sum up this position, there's this statement. The scriptures alone are the basis for the gospel that shows us that justification with God, being right with God, is by faith alone, on the basis of Christ alone, through grace alone, to the glory of God alone. So I want us to just take a brief look at each one of those things. So It's a five-point sermon, um, but I, I promise it's not going to be too long. So let's take a brief look at each of them and and rejoice together at what they mean for us today as life-changing for us as they were for the first disciples of Jesus and for the reformers of the 16th century. So first of all then, sola scriptura, scripture alone. The reason the church had strayed so much and adopted strange ideas and practices was because it had moved away from the Word of God. And, uh, and away from the Word of God being um, the absolute and final authority for faith and practice. You, you didn't go... They, they, they started listening to other people, other ideas that were brought in, They'd strayed away from what God's Word taught. Now, as I said just now, the, the issues are, are not simply between Roman Catholicism in the 16th century and Protestantism. It's, this was going on much earlier than the 16th century. In fact, we find examples of this straying away from scriptural doctrine or the apostles' teaching, within a few years of the church being formed. So let's just have a look at a few examples of this from the New Testament. In Galatians chapter 1 and verses 6 and 7, Paul wrote to the church in Galatia and said, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So we can see very early on there were strange doctrines coming into the church. And then when Paul wrote to Timothy, in his first letter to Timothy, in chapter 1, verse 3, He's speaking to this younger man and saying, Remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And a few chapters later in that same letter In chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So these things were not new in the 16th century these things had grown within the life of the church to the point that the reformers felt this has got to be challenged. We have got to tackle this. So that sort of situation persisted right up until the 16th century and has continued beyond that to this present day when there is a a plethora of strange ideas, and cults and religions purporting to be the truth about God. It's as important today as it ever was to keep coming back to this one source of God's truth. It doesn't change. We need to keep coming back to it. It's like the plumb line against which we align our beliefs and practices In Luther's day, the main issue was with the Roman Catholic Church. But today, there are many other so-called faiths whose teachings are far from the truths that are set out in this book. So this is why we should be careful to come to the Word of God regularly and consistently, checking against it, what we say and what we do as individuals, and as a church. I can remember a conversation with one uh, young lady who was... Um, this was when we were quite new Christians, Julie and I, and although we were members of the Salvation Army, there were certain things that the Salvation Army didn't do. They did a lot of great stuff. And we thoroughly enjoyed our time, but they, the Salvation Army don't break bread together, and they don't um, baptise. So we had a problem with this because we were reading our Bibles and saying, oh, hold on a second, this is strange. Why are we not doing this? And I can remember one... one so what we did was we would, we would duck out every now and then to another church so that we could take communion and break bread together with, with fellow Christians. And so one, one person said to me, why do, why do you do that? Why do you go and take communion? And I can remember saying to her, no, why don't you? <laughs> and she said, because we just don't do that. And that just seems to be the reason why some people do the things they do simply because that's what they've always done. And it's, that's why it's so important to keep bringing these things back to the Word of God and saying, well, what does it say here? So that's what we should do. So that's scripture alone. The next sola was sola fide, which is faith alone. True faith, truth that is acceptable to God, is based on the word of God. Romans chapter 10 and uh, verses 14 to 17. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So, that's why faith is an essential part of of where we are in terms of our relationship with God. Believing what God's word says. And in particular, what the word made flesh, Jesus, said is is the faith that's acceptable to God. It's that faith in what he has said. Receiving Christ, believing him, not relying on somebody else's own devised theory about God or life or eternity. I mean, how many times, you, if you turn on the television, you hear people talking about how Grandpa's up there looking down on them and, you know, he's, someone sings a nice song on Britain's Got Talent and they say, <laughs> I'm, sure, you know, I'm sure your Granny's looking down on you. And I just think... If your granny's in heaven, I'm sure she's not watching ITV on a Saturday night. (laughs) (laughs) But people come up with these strange sort of ideas and they have to be challenged really against what God says in his word. Receiving Christ, believing him, not relying on what somebody else has devised as a theory about God or life or eternity, but trusting implicitly in what this book says. Most other so-called faith systems tell you that there are certain things you have to do and achieve in order to break through into God's presence and favor. But Martin Luther's discovery, as he studied in particular Paul's letters to the Romans and Galatians, What he discovered was that salvation was not based on works or performance, on what you do or what you can achieve. Rather, it came through putting complete faith and trust in Jesus. He discovered that you could be justified, made right with God, by simply trusting him and what he has done. Luther said, when he was on the cusp of um, discovering this wonderful fact, he said, if I could believe that God was not angry with me, I would stand on my head for joy. And then, when he came to understand what the gospel taught, he said, I felt that I was altogether born. Again, and had entered paradise itself through open gates. It was, and it was the word of God. It was what God said, and he just in reading it, he thought, "This is amazing." Of course, by faith alone doesn't mean that as long as we believe in God, we can do whatever we like. The scripture is very clear that that isn't the case. That the letter of James, you may remember, makes it clear that true faith will produce good works. Whereas Luther was protesting against the idea that good works are a substitute for faith. That's probably why Luther didn't have a lot of time for James's letter. He called it a right strawry epistle. Against the teaching and practices of the Roman Church, Luther and the Reformers insisted that the Word of God makes it clear that nothing we do is enough to save us from being separated eternally from God. Which brings us to the next sola, sola Christus, which is Christ alone. This follows easily from faith alone. Because it speaks of where we put that faith or in whom we put our faith. Um, For the past um, probably 30 or 40 years, I've been going regularly out to Poland to um, work with the churches out there. And of course, Poland is 94% Roman Catholic and it, it dominates the scene over there. Not so much these days, but it certainly has done down through, through its history. And um, on one occasion, I was, I was there, and uh, I was talking to a lady after I'd been, I'd been preaching, talking about Jesus, and um, this lady said to me, why do, you, why do you talk to Jesus all the time? And I said, I was taken aback. And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, we talked to Mary. And I said, why? And she said, because she was one of us. So she, she knows what it's like to be a human being. And I said, but, but Jesus was a human being. You, know, you can talk to him. But it's, it's an incredible thing that that, Shift has been taken so that if you go into the large churches in, in Poland, the main central al- altar is dedicated to Mary and Jesus is off in some little side chapel um, because, they, because they say Mary is the Queen of Heaven and she is the Queen of Poland, actually. And a previous pope, not very long ago, who was Polish, um, devoted a lot of his energies to promoting this worship of Mary. So, this is important. Those things, I believe, to use a strong expression, <laughs> are an abomination to God. They're an abomination to Mary, actually, um, for people to put her in the place of Jesus is, I'm sure, an offence, a deep offence to God. It's worth citing here another practice of the Roman church which provoked reformers to challenge it. It's the idea of purgatory and indulgences. Um, purgatory was said to be a sort of halfway place between earth and heaven where all imperfect souls go to be purged of their sins before they are admitted to heaven. So you would, you would have a, a time that you would, you would go into purgatory. Um, but it was taught you could be given days off of your sentence um, by being granted an indulgence uh, which could be earned in various ways. For example, in the year that Martin Luther nailed his theses to the church door, the then Pope, Leo X, declared that anyone donating funds for the building of St. Peter's Basilica in Vatican City um, would be granted indulgences. So they, that would be a re- reduction in their term of, um, in purgatory. Now, you may think that's a rather medieval idea um, and irrelevant to our day, but you may be interested to know that in 2018, Pope Francis gave a similar promise of indulgences to any Catholics who participated in a particular um, conference in Dublin. So, it's, it's not, those days have not passed. Now, although we may, we may not encounter such ideas in our normal day-to-day life or encounters with individuals, we will definitely come across the idea that you can somehow earn your way into God's favour by being a good person and doing exceptionally good things. The whole idea of being called saints or being canonised as saints is based on the idea that those people's good works have earned them a special place in God's kingdom. Mother Teresa, for example. Now, one would would not dispute that people like Mother Teresa did exceptionally good things and lived an exemplary life. According to the word of God, even that is not enough for us to earn our way into God's kingdom. Jesus made it very clear that in order to be given eternal life and a place in God's kingdom and family, we have to be born again. He also very clearly said that no one comes to the Father except through him. So no saint, no Mary... No one except Jesus is the way into the presence of God. No works or indulgences or saintly acts that we perform are enough. We need a saviour. And there is only one. Many of the songs the Christian church has been singing down through the years, repeat and recite that fact over and over again. We're so familiar with them. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Saviour's blood? Died he for me, who caused his pain for me, who him to death pursued? Amazing love. I think the word amazing was invented for the Christian church. I mean, it's a word that we just use it. So I'm amazed at God's grace. I'm amazed that he loves me. This imperfect person who messes up so often, I'm amazed that he loves me. I'm amazed that he's made a way for me to know him. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, saving the death of Christ my God. In Christ alone my hope is found. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. I could reel off a whole lot more. And week after week, we remind ourselves and one another about this. We sing it and sing it, and so we should. And we also remember What he has done for us by breaking bread together as we will do later on. It's our way of remembering. This is the only way for us to come to God. It's through Christ. Salvation is not earned. It's not warranted. It's given based on the fact that Jesus died in our place bearing our punishment for our sin. Which brings us To number four, sola gratia, grace alone. In Titus chapter 2, verse 11, Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. By this, he's not saying that God was not gracious until Jesus came not saying that. If you read your Old Testament, you'll know he was gracious to Adam and Eve. Uh, He could have destroyed them, but he didn't, covered their nakedness and still provided for them. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. David was shown grace uh, in his life and so on and so on. So God was gracious throughout the Old Testament history. But, But when Jesus came into the world, the grace of God appeared. You could see it. You could see it embodied in a person. In his gospel, John introduces Jesus in this way. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father Full of grace and truth. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. I love that. Grace upon grace. It could be translated grace instead of grace, grace in place of grace. When you've used up that bit of grace, there's more, there's more grace. And here on, from the coming of Jesus, we discover the grace of God all over the Scriptures. Because Jesus and what he did and what he taught, in in that we see the grace of God at work. So what is it? You probably could tell me just as easily as I'm telling you, but what is grace? The best way to understand it is that it is a gift. It's a gift. I love is it. Psalm 103 where it says that he doesn't treat us as we deserve, but according to his unfailing love and mercy. What a wonderful thing that is. Don't, don't, don't you find yourself coming back to that almost daily? <laughs> I'm so glad, Lord, you don't deal with me according to what I deserve. It's something that's not earned or merited or warranted. It's completely given. What Jesus did, he did out of perfect love, compassion and generosity. Not one of the people he healed or delivered or helped had done something to deserve it. It was grace. And that demonstration of the kindness and mercy of God through Jesus during his short time here on earth, was intended by God to be an introduction to the good news that that grace, that love, that unearned gift of God was for the world. God loved the world so much. It was his intention that anyone who believes in Jesus could have eternal life. It was a gift offered. And the only earning of it was done by Jesus when he died on the cross. A few more, just a few verses. I mean, I I said you could find grace all over the New Testament, but here's just a few verses. Romans chapter 3, verse 24. And we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus. Chapter 5, verse 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, verse 15, the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And chapter 11, verse 6, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise Grace would no longer be grace. And Ephesians 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I grew... I didn't... I, I, I didn't re- until I became a believer in my late teens, I didn't realise how much of that, um, the culture that I'd grown up with, how much it had, it had soaked into my understanding of things. This, this idea that God would only love me if I, did, if I was a good boy, if I did good things. And I can remember going to make my confession on a Saturday morning and going in and telling, you know, I, I had to tr- really try hard to think of something that I'd done bad. You know, the worst thing was I didn't go to church. But there were lo- loads of things I had to t- try and, I sort of wanted to impress the priest that I, was, that I really did need forgiving. I don't understand. Anyway, but I can remember the relief. I can, I can remember right the road where the k- church was there was a school there and it had got iron railings all the way down and I used to run along, <laughs> used to run down the road running my hands along this fence thinking, home free, <laughs> I've been forgiven, you know. Oh dear. Anyway, but even, even later, after all, I'd put all that behind me and I'd become a Christian and th- there, was still, there was still that... Inbuilt sort of feeling that I've got to do, I've got to do something, you know. God can't love me. How can God love me if I've done things that have offended Him? And you, you just have to keep coming back. It's, it's, it's grace, justice. It's grace. It's a gift. He loves you. He's your Father. He loves you. Do you love your children? Yes, Lord. Well. Do you forgive them when they do things that are wrong? Yes, Lord. And do you approve of what they're doing? No, Lord. But you still love them. I still love them. I still love you. <laughs> this is my conversation, daily conversations with God. So, as time moved on, a different strain of teaching had crept into people's understanding of the way God works. Certain things had to be done to earn forgiveness from God and to have eternal life beyond this one. In order to have a relationship with God, certain things had to be done. For example, in the early days, there were a group called the Judaizers who insisted that you could only be accepted by God if you observed certain Jewish practices and rites, like circumcision, for example. And this is why Paul wrote his letter to the Galatians, it's true to say that he was furious with those who were insisting on these rules being followed. So it was that by the time we get to Luther in the 16th century, we find a whole raft of things that people were being asked by the church to do in order to earn their way into the favor of God. The concept of it being a gift had somehow been lost. And people had become, like the Galatians many centuries earlier, imprisoned by a religious system that bound people up. And I guess the reformers would have wanted to echo Paul's words in Galatians 5. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Yeah. The simplest way of ex- explaining the grace of God is to say that Jesus died in our place and took the burden of our sin and the punishment we deserved. And as we put our faith in that and in him, God gives us forgiveness and accepts us as his own children forever. And so we come to the final sola, soideo gloria, the glory of God alone. You see, it's all building to that. It's saying, It's not what you do. It's not what he does. It's not what somebody else does. It's God. This is God has done this for us. Simply states that there is only one who deserves the credit, the praise, the glory for this great gift of salvation and the hope that we have for eternal life. No one else has done this for you. No one else has done this for me. Nothing we can do earns us any credit. No pope, no saint, no apostle, no priest, no pastor gets the praise. God alone, God alone. And that's what colors and flavors everything we say and sing when we gather here every Sunday evening. To God be the glory, great things. He, this is... This is great. It is so great. And I know we're very familiar with it because we sing it and sing it, but, I, but don't let's ever lose the fact that it is amazing. It is amazing. He didn't have to do this, but he's done it. He's done it for us. I just want to read um, Revelation 7, 9 to 11. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude And all the angels were standing round the throne and round the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. Conclusion. When we say we are reformed in our beliefs, that's what we mean. The church that was formed 2,000 years ago and wandered away from the form God set out in his word, had become deformed. But now it's been reformed. Reformed and by God's grace and with his help, our desire is always to hold to that simple statement that I made at the beginning. The scriptures alone are the basis for the gospel that shows us that justification is by faith alone. On the basis of Christ alone, through grace alone, to the glory of God alone.